0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in British Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Manami Guha, the host or the host for today. We are joined today by Dr. Gardner Thompson to talk about his book, Legacy of Empire: Britain, Zionism, and the Creation of Israel, published by Saki Books in 2019. Welcome, Dr.
0: Thompson. Thank you very much.
1: Um, Before we get started, uh, would you want to tell our listeners a little bit about your academic and professional background?
0: Thank you, yes. I studied history at Cambridge University, and after training for uh, the teaching profession, I went to Uganda, where I taught for two years. This was formative because it coincided with the Idi Amin coup. And that gave me the best history lesson I had ever had because it was happening in front of me. I came back and did a master's at SOAS, the School of Oriental African Studies. Uh, My MA thesis, my master's thesis was published. That was on the expulsion of the Indians from Uganda following Amin's coup. Um, Then I took up a job teaching at Dulwich College in South London, which is an independent boys secondary school and did a PhD part-time while running the history department there. That was on British colonial rule in Uganda during the Second World War. And that was published uh, in 2003, uh, as a study of the entire colonial period in Uganda. After that, a Kenyan election was stolen in 2007, just as I retired, and I wrote a book about African democracy. And so that was really it. And I was really an expert, well, uh, my expertise lay in the British Empire in Africa. But then I had a kind of light bulb moment when I was looking for something else to write about, and I realized I knew nothing about Zionism. And I got interested in Zionism. I started to think about my boyhood uh, experience of the early Israel, the 56 Suez Crisis, the 67 War, the 73, and... I started to study this, I just followed my interest, and I realized that this was an exceptional exercise of British Imperial Initiative, launching the Jewish Homeland uh, Experiment. And I decided I wanted to write about that. And the reason I did was that everybody I spoke to about it in this country, friends, family, first of all, expect ignorance of how Israel had really originated well before the Second World War, and secondly, an interest in knowing what had happened. And that's how I came to write the book.
1: Wow, that that is fascinating. Um, so I mean, I think you've kind of answered the question already is what so if I had to ask you again, what motivated you to research and write The Legacy of Empire, would it be that the, the that that there was an curiosity about it but still went hand in hand with ignorance about the topic?
0: It was absolutely driven by a personal curiosity and absolute fascination coming across the material online. So much of it is available. Nobody reads it. I was absolutely fascinated. Uh, I couldn't get enough of it. I then had a a formative lunch in Oxford in 2016 with one or two uh, colleagues, uh, particularly Avi Schleim, who has written extensively on Israel, being Jewish himself, of course, and once in the IDF. He asked me if I was going to write a book about my interest, and I said, no, I just wish people would read what was already there. And he very kindly said, I think you should. You have an intelligent interest in the subject. And that inspired me to say, OK, I'll try and write something.
1: Wonderful. Um, so now if we can delve into the book itself. So uh, so the first thing I wanted to ask you is, is there a universally agreed to vision of Zionism that has stood the test of time, or has it evolved with changing situations and people's own subjectivities that they were bringing in to define Zionism?
0: Well, that's worth a podcast on its own. Um, (laughs) I know. There were lots of Zionisms in the early days. Uh, There was uh, a kind of political Zionism which said, We must colonize Palestine. That's in the Basel program, 1897, which ought to be as well known as the Balfour Declaration, but nobody's read it. Quite clearly, the statement about Zionism is we wish to build a homeland in in Palestine. We are going to colonize Palestine. It is a colonizing movement. There's also a kind of spiritual Zionism where many wished, yes, indeed, to have a presence in the Holy Land, but not to uh, have a political state. Interesting, Albert Einstein uh, said to Heim Weizmann in 1946, I don't understand why we need a state. Even within Zionism, there were huge variations. Uh, for example, where not everybody thought Palestine. It didn't have to be in Palestine. Theodore Herzl, the founder of the movement, said, anywhere, anywhere where we can go, where we'll be safe and where somebody will guarantee our safety. Um, there were many who said, Let's watch out if we're going into Palestine, because there's an Arab population there. We don't want to alienate them. Others, most particularly Jabotinsky, in the 1920s, said we don't worry about them. We're going to crush them. We'll crush them, and then we can do deal with them. And that was the really hard line Zionism, which drove the rest of the of the period uh, until 1948. So yes, there were many different Zionisms.
1: Um. So uh. So then to continue with the question of how Zionism could or could not have been the answer. Could it, What was it, could be seen as the only inclusive answer to the Jewish question in the mid to late 19th century?
0: No, it certainly was not the only answer. And what is really interesting, and again, I was fascinated to discover, is that it was deeply divisive within the Jewish population of the world, numbering about 11 million at that time, Uh, It was deeply divisive. It was marginal. Most critics of Zionism were Jewish. uh, And they were mainly among the assimilated Jews of Central Western Europe, England, Britain and America. And they thought that this was completely the wrong approach. And the most extraordinary statement of this hostility to Zionism, which represented major Jewish opinion, was the memorandum which the only Jewish member of Lloyd George's cabinet wrote just before the Balfour Declaration. When he said, this is uh, Edwin Montague, he said it would be a disaster. It would increase anti-Semitism. It wouldn't solve any problems. Uh, the Jews weren't a nation anyway. And indeed, and there's a very strong case for saying the Jews weren't a nation, in which case, why should they have a national homeland? But these were Jews criticizing each other in this whole crisis of the 19th century. uh, Theodor Herzl posed the question, can we stay where we are? How long? Where do we go? But there was also a big issue in the 19th century about what it was to be a Jew. And the assimilated Jews of Western Europe and America uh, felt that the answer lay in assimilation with uh, other societies and were deeply critical of the notion that there should be a a national homeland in palestine deeply divisive the whole issue was and continued to be i would say up until around 1930 uh, there was very little evidence of world jewish support for the zionist project um
1: so if i had to so then if if i'm following what you're saying is on the one hand you had the zionist movement that was asking for a separate physical space for the zionist movement and then on the other hand you had the assimilate uh, the ones who wanted to assimilate wherever they might be like you said whether they were in england or whether they were in america or any other part of the world so now between the two groups the 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 discord between the two groups did it make british intervention thereby inevitable
0: (laughs) that's a that's a very good question uh British intervention was not inevitable. Uh, It came about by a series of chance developments. Uh, At the end of 1916, the well, let me say first of all, the Zionists knew that they had no chance of success without the backing of a great power. And Hein Weizmann, who took over the leadership of the movement, was convinced that the British were the great power to work on. in the end of 1916, Britain had a new prime minister. The previous one, Asquith, had no interest in Zionism at all. The new one, David Lloyd George, by chance, was a Christian Zionist, fascinated by the Jewish uh, story and completely won over by the charismatic Heimweizmann. And he also realized that there was a potential in solidifying the um, Allied support during the war, which, of course, was still completely impossible to predict the outcome of uh, that if he appealed to the Jews of America and the Jews of Russia, somehow the the British war effort would succeed. And so he he offered them this, if you like, if we win, we will build the Zionist homeland. And at that just that time, again, complete chance, um, the the war turned in Britain's favour in the Middle East and Palestine was acquired by the British forces at the end of 1917 and so in a sense it was a fait accompli that the British had it and Lloyd George had this passion to follow the Zionist way but I I may come to the reasons for that in a moment but they were fundamentally anti-Semitic reasons which we might like to discuss in a moment. Mm -hmm,
1: Absolutely.
0: Shall I go on to that?
1: Um, Yes absolutely.
0: There were two ways in which this was an anti-Semitic, despite the appearance uh, uh, project. One is there was an assumption uh, in that time that somehow the world was in the grip of a Jewish conspiracy, that Jews manipulated the world through banking, through finance, etc. That was itself an anti-Semitic trope. There was no such conspiracy, but people believed there was and we had to be on their side. We had to have them on our side. But the second thing, which is an absolutely abiding feature of the whole story, and where British uh, example set a kind of template for America and other countries. The British attitude was, we understand that you Jews, and this was mainly in Russia, of course, at that time, not in Germany, in Russia, we realize you have a problem. We realize you want somewhere to go, but you're not coming here. And very interestingly, the Balfour Declaration was signed by the man Balfour, who as Prime Minister had passed the 1906 Aliens Act, which was to keep the Jews out of London. The whole thing was a nimbyism, not in my backyard, why didn't you join the Zionist movement, we'll support them, because they are going to attract the Jews away from coming to settle here, and we don't we don't care what the Arabs think in Palestine, we can ignore that, Um, and we we have a sort of sympathy with this notion that this is a return to the Promised Land. So, I don't think there's any doubt at all that it was anti-Semitic, and in America followed suit in 1924, the Johnson-Reed Act. Uh, Henry Ford, of course, was bitterly anti-Semitic and had played quite a played played quite a part in setting that that context. And in 1938, there was a, an, an Evian Conference, the south of France, in, in France, where 40 countries came together to talk about political refugees. And not one of them, apart from possibly the Dominican Republic, said we're going to have Jews in our country. They can all go to Palestine. Dominican Republic, the noble exception. British Empire, Australians, Canadians, all saying we don't want them to poison us. I mean, the the language is deeply anti-Semitic, but we don't mind them going somewhere else. So the extraordinary thing is that the project of Israel was fed by anti-Semitic sentiment. Whereas now, of course, we say that a criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic. But in those days, advocating Israel was profoundly uh, anti-Semitic in most cases, in most political um, cases. That,
1: that, is deep, that is so interesting and, like you said, so deeply disturbing. And I, w- I want to come back to that conversation about the rise of anti-Semitism during this time, both in Europe. Or would you want to talk about that now? Why was this the time? That you had such a huge anti-Semitic feeling growing and flourishing in this part of the world.
0: Well, that's again a huge question. Um, of course, anti-Semitism is is a feature of, of Christian European society for generations and centuries. And nobody more anti-Semitic, of course, than Martin Luther, who many would regard as a as a as a, as a positive figure, founding Protestant, deeply anti-Semitic. Um, I think if you're looking at the period that we're studying, uh, there was most of the Jews, in fact, a majority of world Jews lived in Russia. And the Russian regime had a particular card to play whenever there was any pressure, which was to play the anti-Semitic card. They knew that people resented the Jews, and they could whip up pogroms against them. And that's why so many were trying to leave at the end of the 19th century. France had its... um, Anti-Semitism, there's no better illustration of that than the Dreyfus Affair, 1894. Um, and of course, the 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 most notorious case, of course, was Germany. Well, Austria was deeply anti-Semitic at that time. You've only got to read um, The Hair with Amber Eyes, Edmund de Waal's book. Um, but Austria in particular, and then Germany, uh, we know that the rise of Hitler was not centred on anti-Semitism, it was more to do with the, the 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 trauma of losing the First World War, but the Jews could be blamed, and Hitler was clearly himself um, extremely uh, anti-Semitic, and that is why in the 1930s the British, having established their mandate in Palestine, awarded it to themselves, um, and having committed themselves to building the Jewish home there, or at least facilitating it, found themselves with untold numbers of Jewish people coming from Germany uh, who wanting to settle in Palestine and the Zionists being well organized to bring them over to, uh, to, to to settle in Palestine. And so that's when the real crisis bit in the 1930s when the British began to see the consequences of their commitment which was ever increasing numbers of Jewish immigrants, pathetic desperate people longing for any home uh, and they came. From to, they, they were confronted by comp- increasing Arab resistance to land seizures, dispossession, etc., and a, a massive Arab revolt in 1936. So Hitler's Germany is the key phenomenon, which, if you like, precipitates um, the the mandated Palestine towards Israel through a series of, obviously, in terms of the Holocaust, horrendous events. But. Um, It was really all happening before the Second World War. Wow,
1: Um, this kind of brings me to the next question. And I think in your book on page 15, you articulate the Zionist mission so well. And if I may quote from the book, to reestablish themselves in their historic homeland, Palestine, bring civilization to the Middle East, the crossroads of continents, and act as a moral beacon for the world, end quote. Now, if I were to ask you that you had the Western part of the world pushing, you know, encouraging the Jews to leave Europe, to head to that homeland based on that Zionist mission, was it too unrealistic a dream to accomplish, given the fractured history of the region where they were articulating this vision? If we now look at Palestine.
0: That's another huge question on the, on the, on the nature of, of Zionism. Um, what you just quoted was, if you like, the most positive uh, spinning of Zionism, that it had all these positive features. If we take them one by one, the reestablishment of a Jewish homeland begs huge historical questions about the past, uh, which I don't go into into the book because I didn't want to write an encyclopedia. Um, but it all goes back to the notion of revolt in the first century BC, uh, AD, revolt and exile. And just to mention in passing, as I do in the book, one of the um, um, Israeli scholars on this period, Shmuel Sand, devotes 60 page chapter, a, a 60 page chapter to demolishing the myth of the exile so there, the point about returning to the homeland is is deeply controversial and remains so and i haven't got a obviously a final version uh, statement on that secondly the idea of bringing civilization to the middle east crossroads obviously uh, is rather diminishing of arab civilization over centuries from which we were deeply indebted in the, in the uh, in the modern early modern period um and as for acting as a moral force this was one of the themes of, um, uh, of Ginsburg, for example, the one who's, who said, we want a spiritual Zionism, we don't want a political one. But the experience of the um, huge uh, Arab-Muslim majority was not of a moral force, but of a dispossessing force. And if you take those three points and ask the Arab-Palestinians, the Muslim-Palestinians, uh, largely Muslim, although it's very strong, articulate Christian, um, opposition to Zionism among um, Arabs in that time—they didn't want to be colonized, they didn't want to be civilized, and they didn't believe in this moral beacon. So th- th- this was, in a, w- in a way, what you quoted was largely Zionist uh, propaganda. And I'm not saying that Zionism wasn't sincerely uh, advocated, but then again, there's a wonderful irony that the two key figures in Zionism, Theodor Herzl, its founder. Chaim Weizmann, its, its real progenitor, were among the two most assimilated Jews of their generation. So Zionism is, is multi contradictory. But it did have this commitment, the core commitment, which led to the British uh, having to admit failure in 1947, they said that their commitment to both uh, communities was uh, an impossible dream, and that they had to hand over the whole thing as a disaster to the United Nations.
1: Um, So, uh, Dr. Thompson, for our listeners who might not be entirely familiar with some of the incidents and some of the things that we've been talking about, uh, would it be possible for you to provide a good summary of uh, what the British decided to do with Palestine in the Balfour Declaration that led to it becoming the unmitigated disaster that Britain left it in before handing it over to the United Nations?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it began with the Balfour Declaration, which in the heat of the First World War, uh, without any certainty that it would, could ever be implemented, promised the Jews, a homeland in Palestine, to facilitate the creation of one without sacrificing the rights of the indigenous people. In other words, it was two contradictory promises, palpably contradictory, but nevertheless okay as a, piece of, uh, as a, as a wartime device. What is extraordinary is that uh, Lloyd George and his government after the war didn't shed that promise the way they shed most of the others, but stuck to it. And they wrote the mandate, they wrote the um, Dalfour Declaration into the mandate uh, which the League of Nations dominated by them and the French had awarded them. This was in denial of article 22 22 of the covenant which said you can't do that kind of thing but anyway they did it so in a nutshell the sequence was that uh, the British took over this relatively backward country underpopulated fairly backward um, and nothing much happened in the 20s Uh, there was a trickle of Jewish immigration um, and indeed at one point Chaim Weizmann seems to be rather anxious that there weren't enough Jews to fulfill The dream that he had sold to the British. Uh, Nevertheless in 1929 there was a big um, clash between Jews and um, Arabs on a a religious basis but the key turning point really was Hitler coming to power when suddenly there was a a flood where there'd been a trickle and this time when land changed hands it wasn't just ownership it was uh, or absentee ownership it was Uh, Arab peasants being dispossessed and it became a big issue among the Arabs. So 1936 there's a huge Arab revolt against the British and indeed against the Zionist movement. There was a short pause in that when a most extraordinary commission was set up to inquire as to what was going on. This was the Peel Commission of 1937. Five very eminent Brits were asked to investigate the, the, the reasons for this Arab revolt and to see what could be done. And they were very eminent and they were very thorough and they came up with a an alarming uh, conclusion. They said that the conflict in Palestine between uh, indigenous Arab Palestinians and incoming Jews, Jewish immigrants was irreconcilable. And this echoed the prediction of an amazing American report back in 1919 by two eminent Americans, King and Crane, who had said that if the, if the project went ahead with, quote, a certainty like fate, with a certainty like fate, it would be disastrous. And the Peel Commission was reporting just a few years later, absolutely right, it's, it's a disaster. And the Peel Commission, and this was one of the many things that struck me between the I'd never heard of this, advocated a two-state solution. They said there cannot be any reconciliation, it's impossible. The only way out for Palestine, the mandate, is a two-state solution, a Jewish state and an Arab state. Well, nobody really accepted this, and in fact the Arab revolt then continued, and that's uh, that takes away. But what's so extraordinary in the light of most people's minimal general knowledge, if I may say that, is that this recognition had happened before the Second World War, that Palestine was ungovernable as a single entity, and could only be shared as a British responsibility as two separate states. Well, of course, there haven't been yet two separate states. This wasn't a solution as yet. But when the war came along, um, the Palestinians, uh, the native Palestinians, had been really crushed by the severity of the British repression of their revolt, which was pretty nasty. I won't go into that now. And the Zionist forces, and they were forces, I mean, they had military forces there from the 1920s, had been very effective. During the war, ironically, it was the Zionist forces, Ergun, various terrorist groups who were trying to get the British out. The relationship had completely been transformed. Originally, the British were the patrons of the Zionist, um, you know, the infant Zionist movement. By the During the Second World War, the Zionists were running the show and, and setting the pace. And in the end, they made the country ungovernable. And the British extraordinarily, the Foreign Secretary of 1947, Ernest Bevin, announced in the House of Parliament just 30 years after the Balfour Declaration had been made by his predecessor, Balfour. He said, we have to recognize that the contradictory promises we made are irreconcilable. There is no future for us here. And one interesting thing. Our dream that somehow the injection of Jewish capital and manpower and expertise would be welcomed by the Arabs has not come to pass. And they staked a lot on that without realizing that people don't like things being done to them even if they're for the good sometimes they just want people to leave and so the British handed over to the United Nations and the United Nations picked up the Peel report and said well this looks pretty well like what we're going to have to do and so the following year a two-state solution was initiated with the Jewish population a tiny minority still having 55 percent of the land. and of course since then there's been a sequence of crises and wars to try and resolve the situation i hope that helps clarify a bit
1: it does it does thank you so much because i really think it gives the background and the historical context against which um, what we have been talking about will make a lot of sense for our uh, listeners um so if i um you know so at the beginning of chapter two uh you claim that palestine was not seen as an attractive prospect. And we've just talked about why that would have been the case for the Jewish immigration immigrant masses. Um, what did the rejection of Palestine by most Jews mean for the fate of the Zionist movement?
0: That's very interesting. <clears throat> uh, two levels of, I was gonna answer that. Uh, one is that the British government before David Lloyd George didn't think Palestine was important, only he did. But much more important did uh, Jews, as a general, uh, as, as a, in general, think it was attractive? Well, no, it wasn't. It was very backward, um, and it was disease-ridden, and all that kind of thing. And the the facts speak for themselves. The overwhelming majority of Jewish people fleeing persecution in the late nineteenth century went to your country. They went to the USA. Something like two and a half million left and went to America, inspired by the Statue of Liberty, etc. Um, Quite a few went elsewhere, quite a few came to Britain, despite the Aliens Act. But somebody quite rightly said that America was the promised land. If you were a not particularly religious, practicing Jewish family, you wanted somewhere to live that was going to be safe, and ideally somewhere where you had a future. And the future was was, was America, not Palestine. Quite a large number, maybe up to a quarter, of those who did go to Palestine under Zionist organizational aus- auspices simply left. They, they didn't, they didn't take root. So Zionism really needed, um, uh, it, it needed, uh, ironically and tragically, it needed Hitler, because it was only in the 1930s, that the um, persecution of the Jews in, uh, in um, Nazi Germany became so extreme, that many left. Interestingly, on that score, Lloyd George visited Germany in 1936 and sang the praises of Hitler, not for being anti-Semitic, but Lloyd George completely ignored the fact that the previous year, the Nuremberg Laws had deprived Jews of citizenship. Lloyd George was himself personally anti-Semitic, there's no question about it, as well as him being representative of a general prevailing sense, we don't want them here, we must send them somewhere else. But Palestine wasn't a particularly attractive place to go uh, unless you had some messianic vision there. And of course, there were a, a handful of religious Jews in um, Palestine by 1914, 1917, who weren't political at all. But they're mainly in Jerusalem, you know, uh, and they didn't particularly welcome the Zionists either because the Zionists arrival rocked the boat. But that's another story, too. Right.
1: Right. Um... Do you agree with, and you know, I mean, clearly your book is a testament to the amount of research you have done on this topic. Um, So if I had to ask your opinion, uh, as someone who is clearly has delved very deeply into this matter, um, do you agree or disagree with the basic premise of the Zionist argument that they were an exiled population there was no one homeland and that it was essentially a secular based faith
0: Gosh Even Jewish scholars have struggled to define Zionism and one of the greatest of them while acknowledging that this was a secular movement it regarded itself as it presented itself as secular by saying everybody else is colonizing and of course they were in the late 19th century everybody else wants a homeland like the czechs or the Poles. what's wrong with us having one but the fact is they could never escape the bible as their inspiration Um, and in the bible they are the chosen people and israel is the promised land So it's a strange mix of secular and religious. I tend to prefer to see Zionism in its secular manifestation because that is how it has impacted on other people, particularly, obviously the Palestinians. And it seems to me quite legitimate to criticize Zionism, as indeed innumerable Jews have done over the decades for being a political movement with which they did not want to identify. So, I think the whole secular religious thing is 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 difficult um uh, I may have lost my thread now if, do you want to, me to come back on any other aspect of that one
1: um well uh and the fact that the Zionists make this claim about being an exiled population that they did not have a homeland. Do you agree with these other two hmm. uh claims? The,
0: the fundamental fact and i I try to present in my book the evidence as I see it which is sort of authenticated. Um, There was already uh, at the time of Christ um, and before the Jewish revolt in Palestine there was already a big diaspora. There were Jews, there was an ancient Jewish population of Babylon um, in the Middle East, there there were Jewish centers in Egypt, in, in Italy, there was a diaspora. Indeed, there was trade between the Jews of Palestine and the Jews of the rest of the world. So there is a problem with this notion that the revolt led to an exile from a single homeland. There's another problem with the revolt, which nobody has yet contradicted, which is that if there was a revolt in 70 AD, uh, which led to their exile, who revolted in a hundred years later when there's another Jewish revolt against um, uh, the authorities. So I I can only say, and you you, you, um, credit me with having read a lot, there is an enormous literature on this and it is unresolved. And almost anything you say will be contested. But above all, it is contested among Jewish scholars.
1: Right. Um, do you think, uh, so as we start to now wrap up the discussion, unfortunately, um, has, is there any other big uh, argument or theme from your book that I have missed out on asking you about?
0: Uh, <clears throat> to state the obvious, we need to know the history. Uh, Jared Krishna was somewhat surprisingly given the job by President Trump to bring about a peace deal. Uh, a couple, of few years ago, and he said to Palestine, no, he didn't talk to Palestinians. He said to everybody he spoke to, I don't want the history. Well, if you don't know the history, you you, you haven't got a chance. So we do need the history. Um, I would just emphasize that the British, this is an extraordinary and exceptional example of British imperial failure through caprice rather than you know calculation and shrewdness. Uh, it was driven by anti-Semitism it was not inevitable. And to criticize Zionism Zionism in its present form, which, if you like, is incorporated in the uh, Israeli state and Israeli government, that seems to me legitimate. And it is uh, quite outrageous for uh, people like Netanyahu and others to say that any criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic. That's deeply offensive. And of course, it also uh, uh, says little for the Jewish critics of Israel who, who, who continue to be in large numbers. So I think, no, I think kind of, uh, thank you. Uh, we, we have covered the ground and um, I'm very grateful to have had a chance to uh, share my thoughts and findings with you.
1: Amazing, I, I really enjoyed I really enjoyed reading it. Um, So the copious amount of sources you have used in writing this book is remarkable. Uh, Will you tell us a little bit more about your sources and your encounters with them?
0: Yes, I think, um, uh, as I said, the the whole project began with a kind of light bulb moment of wanting to find out about Zionism. And I think from that moment onwards, I just got led by one source to another. I mean, there is a kind of sequential thing. And it was only really when I got into the history of the mandate and the British involvement, uh, looking at one or two well-established histories um, written by various uh, Jewish authors mainly, I was driven to look at all their material, look at all the, the reports regarding various Arab revolts, uh, the, the, manifest, the, the Montague um, memorandum, these are things which uh, are referred to frequently, but people don't seem to have dwelt on and studied. No, no Nothing more than the Basel programme, which n- nobody seems to have heard of, and yet is clearly fundamental. Um, the Peel report, uh, the Peel Committee, and all these things are online. And I think once I decided I wanted to get a, an overall grasp, I had to look at what was online. And there are two or three really good um online uh, bases, um, The Jewish Virtual Library is excellent. And of course, again, once you read one thing, you're seeing a reference to another one. And you accumulate in the end, partly by accident, partly by design, you accumulate enough, and I, I, I emphasize the word enough, nobody can read everything there is on this topic, it is just beyond words. But you can get enough uh, to make a, a considered, and I think, um, strong case.
1: And for anyone who is curious about the topic, I really think that your book is a good place to start. Um, So uh, I'm assuming that due to space constraints, you probably were forced to make some cuts along the way. Is there anything that is left out of the book that you want to share with our listeners today?
0: Not really, no. Um, I was very happy to leave out the previous 2000 years of Jewish history because that is so contentious. And it was only because of my publisher uh, that I included the the later years um, of what has happened since 1948 to somehow bring it towards the present. So I think my purpose was relatively restricted to look at the British responsibility, obviously to define Zionism, otherwise it wouldn't make any sense, and to see how this brought uh, the State of Israel about in, in 1948. So um, I think my focus was relatively limited in, in terms of time. 1890s, 1840s, before and after that, that would have been another series of books.
1: And, and then this leads me to my concluding question for you. Any upcoming projects that you might want to share with our listeners?
0: Yes, it's more than a project. It is a a book which exists, but not yet published. And it's related to the uh, re-evaluation of history, which in America and Britain is quite a dominant theme. I'm calling it Must Rhodes Fall, because one of the most spectacular campaigns around here has been an attempt to get the statue of Cecil Rhodes, the great imperialist, removed from Oriel College, Oxford. But it links in with Black Lives Matter. It links in with statues being demolished or moved into um, museums, as uh, I recently discovered has been the case in Denver, uh, Colorado. It's all to do with how to re-evaluate the past. What moral criteria can we use? And as my study, uh, I take Southern Rhodesia, the the settler colony, I mean, from one settler colony to another, and I explore that within a template in which I claim to be able to say when it is and when it isn't, meaningful to make judgments about people in the past, but I can't begin to go into the details of that yet. (laughs) That sounds
1: like a mammoth project and I look forward to reading it whenever it's published and hopefully, um, have, and hopefully, you know, do an interview with you about that as well. Um, thank you for joining us on new books network in British studies today. Uh, Dr. Thompson, uh, for the listeners out there, if this interview has piqued your interest in this brilliant monograph you can pick up a copy of the book of his book legacy of empire britain zionism and the creation of israel directly from saki books or your local bookstore thank you so much dr thompson
0: thank you very much